The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, this is Tim Foster with Capital Weekly, and I want to welcome you to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. This week, we have been broadcasting audio recordings from last week's postmortem of the election. This is an event that we hosted in conjunction with the McGeorge Capital Center for Law and Policy, and Capital Weekly has actually been doing the postmortem for 10 years. Uh, we started this back in 2010, continuing on a tradition that goes way, way back. Uh, the California Journal used to do these postmortems two days after the election, going back, gosh, probably back into the 80s. And so Capital Weekly decided to start doing that in 2010. We've been doing it ever since. And so last Thursday, two days after the election, we gathered a group of experts and some journalists to talk about what just happened. And we have broadcast the other three panels already. Today, uh, we are going to broadcast the keynote. The keynote uh, is by Ace Smith. Ace Smith is the go-to political consultant in California. He's worked for basically everybody who's everybody in the Democratic Party. Uh, Jerry Brown, Senator Kamala Harris, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton. He, in fact, guided Senator Harris' presidential campaign earlier in the year. He joined us by uh, by Zoom and was interviewed by Capital Weekly editor John Howard. So I'm going to go to that in one second, and I hope you'll enjoy that. I do want to thank our sponsors. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we do these events uh, through the charity of our and the support of our sponsors. And uh, so I would be remiss if I did not thank them. So first off the bat, the Tribal Alliance Sovereign Indian Nations, also known as TASSEN, they have been a presenting sponsor for Open California and Capital Weekly since basically the nanosecond that we started as a 501c3. And uh, I can't thank them enough. Also, KP Public Affairs, they have been supporting our events programming for many, many years now, uh, hopefully next year as well. And the Western States Petroleum Association also has been sponsoring our events for quite a few years. Uh, the California Building Industry Association came in this year. Capital Advocacy, also a longtime sponsor. Uh, Lucas Public Affairs, longtime, longtime sponsors. Uh, Perry Communications, been with us for quite a long time. Also uh, new this year, Kaiser Permanente. And they came in and sponsored uh, all of our events programming for 2020. Uh, also the Associated Builders and Contractors of Northern California, California Professional Firefighters, Pandora, and the one, the only, Paula Treat. So they made this possible. Thanks so much to them. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn you over to John Howard, who's going to introduce A. Smith, do a little bit of an interview with him. Thanks again for listening. Next week, we're going to get back to regular episodes of the Capital Weekly Podcast, and uh, I hope you'll listen. Thanks. Jim, thank you very much. A. Smith, thank you very much uh, for joining us today to chat. Um, People, everybody knows, but I thought I'd repeat it anyway. You've been on more campaigns, I think, than I can count uh, over more than 40 years now. Uh, you did Barbara Boxer. You did Dianne Feinstein. You did Hillary Clinton. You did um, Antonio Villaragosa. You've done a whole bunch of them. You've done ballot props, including Prop 32, I think it was, which was basically very important and helped California fiscally get its house in order and was backed by Brown. You've done Brown. 
soon how, how you how soon we forget Jerry Brown, Jerry Brown. So you've, you've got a national perspective as well as a state perspective. And of course, you've done Kamala Harris's presidential race, state and federal presidential race, as well as state AG's race. So with all that, I figured you can make some sense out of the election we're seeing right now. Now, just before we started this, um, I saw there were five states in play. It seemed to be Biden doing well in terms of, you know, it's really a close vote, but he seemed to be trending. Uh, depending on which vote count you look at, he's got 253 electoral votes, or if you include Arizona, he's got 264. So with that, what are you saying and what should be, we be watching? Well, we should be watching very closely and we'll, we'll get through a lot of that. And it's probably going to change uh, as we sit here and talk. Uh, but it, the good news is going to change if you're a Democrat in our favor. Uh, it, it's truly a different experience giving a, a speech on Zoom. And, and uh, I thought about renting a podium uh, in an empty room. And then I realized that, that my arms would get really tired if I tried to do a Kimberly Guilfoyle. So uh, <laughs> we're just going to do uh, this keynote, which is probably a lot, a lot more like shouting through a keyhole. And uh, I, I can't thank Capital Weekly enough. Uh, it's really an honor to do this seminar. And uh, what I've decided to do, and, and also, again, folks watching, feel free to interrupt me. I, uh, I, I don't mind that at all. kind of think it's fun with questions. But I decided instead of talking about all of the things that, you know, we hear people pontificating about 24-7 on cable news, I thought I'd instead kind of address some topics that uh, aren't being addressed so much and, and wander down some odd byways and, and let you hear some things you, you might not hear elsewhere. And so I thought we'd start by having a little fun. Um, Ten years ago, uh, on the next Tuesday after the first Monday in the month of November, uh, I headed for an election night party at Delancey Street in San Francisco. And as is my custom, I set up a group of computers in what I thought to be the most secluded part in a back room. It was a beautiful back room because it even had no windows and awaited the results. And sitting there and sure enough, the 801 results come in and we're far behind. And as the night progresses, we drew closer and closer. And as we drew closer and closer, my secluded little table on the edge of the room started being crowded with people who grew closer and closer and closer to the table I was sitting at. And these people included some pretty interesting people, a, a campaign staffer named London Breed, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Senator uh, Mark Leno, and the margin began to shrink that night, uh, but it never seemingly shrunk to, especially by as we hit like the 10 o'clock hour close enough. and. As we approached the 11 o'clock live news hour that night, uh, just before we did, our opponent went on TV and declared victory. Slightly after 11, we decided that our candidate should go out and give a short you know, kind of keep fighting, let's count all the votes speech to the assembled crowd. And as they walked through the crowd, the candidate noticed that many people were crying and that candidate believed that they were very touched by the scene. Afterwards, we learned that, in fact, uh, they were crying because a major daily 
had actually proclaimed, declared our defeat uh, as we were walking in and, and folks were pulling it up on their phones. But, but what did this candidate do in the face of all of that? This candidate said, let's count all the votes. And the race dragged on for weeks and weeks as we counted the votes. And the candidate kept on saying, let's count all the votes. And that candidate was San Francisco District Attorney Kamala Harris. And when we counted all the votes, we know Kamala Harris won. And she became the first woman and the first African-American hold the office of Attorney General. What's striking is 10 years later, uh, the parallels we're dealing with. Uh, we have a, a, an opponent who has declared victory on election night. Uh, and the, the good thing is that the, really the, the votes tend to be, seem to be really moving in our direction. And I believe that when we count all the votes, um, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden will win this thing. But it's just a, a striking parallel. And I thought since we're sitting here in California, we should maybe relive it for a minute. Um, what, what for me has made things most painful uh, about this election as we reach a final verdict is, is, is simply this. And, and I can't say it more directly or simply, uh, but polling's broken. Polling is fundamentally broken. It's something that we, we need to face. And, and unfortunately, this is not a new phenomenon. We face this three times in the history of our country. And uh, the first time, which people forget because it was so long ago, was in the 1936 election. The, the pollster for America in those days was, was a magazine called Literary Digest, which had a, a subscription base of millions and millions. And they had been doing a, a, like a mail-in uh, uh, survey of voters in presidential elections. And they had been spot on dating back to 1916. So you fast forward to the 1936 election, and we probably remember the, the two candidates are Franklin Roosevelt running for his first, for second term, running for re-election, and Al Landon, the Kansas governor. And Literary Digest pull, you know, comes in, they pull up, and they have a sample size of 2.4 million. And they predict that Landon's going to win with 57% of the vote. Uh, to Roosevelt's 43. And of course, we all know when the votes were counted that election, it actually turned out to be one of the most lopsided victories in, in American history. It turned out, I think the only ones that have exceeded that have probably Johnson in 64 and maybe uh, I think McGovern Nixon are probably the two. Uh, but what happened is there was a huge realignment with the way polling was done as a result of that. And what happened was people got together and, and there was a guy named who really came to light and, and came of fame named George Gallup. And, and he really came to people and, and he made the argument that guess what? Having a large sample is not necessarily good. You need to have a representative sample. And so he really became the ascendant pollster and in America. And then we fast forward to the much more famous 1948 election, uh, the Dewey-Truman uh, election. And this is a, an election that Gallup was deeply involved in. And the flaw in this case was that they probably had correct numbers, but they didn't pull close enough to the election. And they, they were satisfied with getting numbers like a, a month or two weeks out, and they didn't really capture the dynamism of what was happening. 
Now, what's fascinating in 1948 is this, is, and I actually own a copy of this book. There was a, a, an academic commission, it wasn't an official government commission, that was put together to find the solutions. And what they decided was that, again, they needed great sampling and they need more dynamism uh, in terms of the, when they actually check the, the polling, but, but they actually got together and they figured out a solution, which frankly, you know, it evolved and polling of course evolved and, and there were new techniques uh, and it was in a pretty good place. And then we come to 2016 and everyone knows what happened in 2016. And the sad thing is that people didn't come together to figure out uh, what was broken. And today we face a you know, presidential election that's a squeaker. Uh, the Senate looks like it's, it's unfortunately like it probably is going to end up status quo. And, you know, there, there may be a inside straight the Democrats can pull, but that's what it's going to take here. Um, we have ballot measures in California, which showed a, a tinge of unanticipated fiscal conservatism. Uh, legislative races in California, really, I mean, the assembly, to my knowledge, I, I think is one nothing and maybe the Senate picks up a few seats, but nothing compared to what was predicted. And same thing with the congressional races across America. And what, what's sad, and so you, we ask ourselves, so oh, the pollsters got a few things wrong, what's the big deal? It is a big deal because they predicted a blue wave that never came. And the people who are really gonna pay the consequences of that uh, are the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, Ace, you've, you've seen a lot of polls. What are they doing wrong now? Or what could they do better now that they, what, what do they need to do to fix the problem? You mentioned it's sure. broken. So what needs to be done? Sure. I, I mean, well, I mean, let, let me just lay out a bunch of the problems. And, and I think the solutions lay in the problems. I mean, there's too many polls that are still conducted solely by phone, which is just, you know, so I, I consider that just a travesty because you're basically only pulling a small self-selecting slice of the electorate, electoral pie. Uh, there's a lot of sloppy online polling where we pull people and we don't ultimately know like who they are. There's combinations of those things. There's, there's not enough awareness. And, and, and this is something that I think needs to be analyzed. And it, it's, a, it's a small but incredibly important thing. When you pull in, and, and this is actually something that has haunted me since 2016, when I had a pollster who came to me and said, I'm really haunted by the fact that I think that I'm I'm calling or reaching into all these areas and the people who think I'm with the fake news or, or a democratic party are just hanging up on me. So there's the termination problem, which is, and, and that's no small problem. Essentially in any polling you do, there's a certain number of the polls that essentially you're going to go into the trash can. And the assumption has been that that's a random sample. Well, what if it's not? What if what's going into the trash can and because of terminations or hangups are overwhelmingly Trump voters? and they just don't want to talk to the pollsters. And, and we're not waiting our results for that. Um, there's also, you know, frankly, there's no kind of real awareness of who's lying to us. And, and you know, that's one of the classic things. Like if you do a, if you do a poll and you ask people, uh, are they going to participate and go to, you know, go to the polls and cast their vote? And have they been a great pollster, uh, a, a, a great voter, over time, they say, absolutely. 
I'm not, I'm not only am I going to go to the polls, but I'm going to get online. And I'm going to study this thing deeply. And, and then you look up their vote history and you realize that they're like one out of 10 voters. Uh, and then there's, and, and let's, you know, the, the, the other huge issue that, that is really tricky is race. And, and I'll just tell a, a very simple story that was really kind of woke. I, I'd always been aware of that. And we know about the Bradley effect, but I unintentionally did a, a um, what turned out to be a social science experiment in a poll I did for Tony Thurman, our state superintendent of instruction, where we did an online poll and the, the two instruments were identical with, with one difference in one of them had a small little photo of the two candidates, one who was white and one who was African-American, Tony Thurman. And just the, the literally the pictures residing in one of the instruments and not another profoundly, profoundly changed the outcome. And again, I, I'm not sure that that's always the way to get at it, but, but there, is, there is a racial factor that, that, is, that needs to be understood. And, and we need to find a way to, to do that. Again, I don't claim to have all the answers here, but what I do know is that, is that we need to be bold and we need to be willing to take risks to get the answers. And, and the, the irony of ironies is here, here we're sitting and we're sitting in a world where there's more data than ever. And, and we're sitting in, in a world where these, especially big tech companies and, and, and big retailers have figured out how to use that data to be incredibly, incredibly accurate with their marketing. There, there's no reason why the answer's not there. We just need to uh, be stop being lazy, stop doing the same thing we've been doing and, and try a bunch of new things. Does that answer your question, John? Do you think, uh, just on a related topic, do you think uh, the elimination of Voting Rights Act is pr protection, so the Voting Rights Act, um, nationally or in California, does that affect the outcomes? And do you think, and does it affect polling in some fashion? It probably does. I, I think the, the, the more profound thing that has affected it affected that is the, and it's one of those things that as a Democrat just makes me angry is the Republicans uh, were in, in, in the most sinister way uh, had a program to take over all these legislatures and they, they built in ways to purge voter rolls, to make it harder to vote. And they've been systematically doing that. And, um, there, there needs to be, there's been some great things done about that, but there needs to be an effort every bit as big as what they have done to counter all of that. Okay. Really uh, moving away from uh, the polls for just a second, um, do you have any sense looking forward, if Biden and Harris win, do you have any sense of who will be serving in the administration from California? What, will, what role will California do you see uh, which Californians go there and uh, hook up, so to speak? Who the heck knows? But but all I gotta say is is that's a beautiful thing, because I, I mean California has been out of the White House uh, since Ronald Reagan left, and uh, we we are in and we are now in the White House, and and I can't tell you how huge that is when you when you, you know when you know uh, if they win like they look like they will uh, the. Uh, California is back in an unprecedented way, and and we should be, uh, we, we should be, and uh, there's no question that the uh, not just 
the appearance on national ticket, but the candidacy of, of Senator Kamala Harris, uh, I think he's had turned a lot of heads, had a profound impact. I mean, you're talking about someone who went in the debates, made the biggest stir. You're talking about someone who had the, the biggest rally in Oakland of, of anyone that pulled out people that, that uh, the size that people thought were unimaginable. Uh, you know, so there's, there's a lot of things that should turn a lot of people's heads. And I think that will have great, great, great uh, consequences, uh, good consequences for California. You know, every time we get into one of these close elections, uh, I always I, I, I keep wanting to make the electoral college proportional, not a winner take all. I think it's Maine and Nebraska right, that have a proportionality, but, but I think according to congressional district. But why can't you have, uh, instead of winner take all, why can't you have one, one candidate gets 50%, gets 60% of the vote and they get 60% of the, elect, of the delegates? Uh, the, the electors. Another candidate gets 40%, they get 40%. If you eliminate the winner take all, wouldn't there be a greater sense of fairness? Or is that a bad idea from a consultant standpoint? Oh, I don't think it's a bad idea. It's the, the problem with messing with the electoral college is that to, to really, if you really want to uh, foundationally, you, you know, do it, you have to do a, a constitutional amendment and that's just not going to happen. There's no way you're going to get States and people just don't give up power they have. That's just human nature. And but there is a way to do it that I think is is just it is it it, it you have to have control of uh, you know the, the Congress. But there's an incredibly simple way to do that, which is if you just take the House of Representatives and you knock it up into something like uh, you know the mid six hundreds. People have done the math on this. You you essentially end up with uh, proportional representation. And that can be done just with a simple legislative act and signed by the, by the president of the United States. And, and, and that's the way, as a practical matter, is, is the way that you actually level the playing field. And it's something that, you know, as you know, it's been done repeatedly in American history, most recently at the turn of the last century. And, so, and, and why we have the proportions we have, uh, you know, that is ridiculous because it's over 100 years old. Kind of like New Hampshire. Don't they have 400... 50 or 500 <laughs> members of House of Delegates or something. I just, everybody is a member almost, it seems to me. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that works there, but. But when, once, like you're at, once you're at 400 something members, it's like adding an extra two, I don't think makes much difference. But, it, but frankly, it, it, um, uh, it, it's, it's the, it, it's the practical way to, to make the Electoral College fair again. You think the primary being moved in California, we talk about this a lot. Um, you think primary being moved up, does that have an impact on how much people pay attention to us? Oh, hell yeah. It, I, think, I think this cycle, this was a funny cycle because I, I think that the, a lot of the national press corps sees the world uh, the way they've always seen the world and, and it's hard to get change uh, cooked in into their equations. But I think uh, us being on, on Super Tuesday is, is a beautiful thing. It's, and, and look, it, this was a real important primary. Uh, it truly was. And, and it's going to loom larger and larger as time goes on. And, and that, that's one of the best things that, 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 that's happened to California. I mean, California has gone from, I mean, we were just almost like an ATM where people would come in and scoop out money and leave to be in a place where you actually have to go and you have to, um, 
uh, you have to talk to people, you have to do events, you have to campaign for goodness sakes. You think there's any change in California over time after Trump leaves, when Republicans get back to more to a more normal than they had before Trump came along? Uh, does California stay overwhelmingly Democratic like it is now, or do you see more of an evening? Uh, you see more, you know, the old the older style. Well, California actually was more evenly was more bipartisan maybe than than it is now. I, I think we've, I think that's a foundational thing that doesn't have to do with the niceties of ideology and political discourse. I, I think it's a, a thing that goes to the, you know, the fundamental economic divide in this country. As a matter of fact, I, I, I truly believe like the best book written about American politics, uh, really since it was written around 2016, like so over the last five years, was a book written about French politics by a French geographer. Uh, it's called The Twilight of the Elites by uh, Julie. And what he argues, and, and you can see it in California, you see the contours, is that what's happened in, in all these countries is that the, the, the kind of basically the well-off elites have really moved to the coasts and created uh, enclaves, economic enclaves, surrounded somewhat by service folks but that, that once you go into the interior, not just of California, but of the country, you essentially have a whole bunch of people who feel very just completely dealt out of power and dealt out economically. And so is this thing, is just with nicer discourse, is this going to change? No, it's not. And, and I'll tell you one thing you can do if you're, I, I'm, I'm a, I love looking at history and, and trends. And one of the great things about being in California is you can go back and look at all the field institute data, I think it to 1948, I believe. And so for instance, if you do the very simple thing of, of you pull up the, the, uh, the, you know, essentially the, the favorable and unfavorable ratings of Jerry Brown, first time he was governor, 1974, and look at him 36 years later, what you find is something pretty dramatic, which is that when he was governor the first time, as, as you know, liberal and everything as people thought he was, there was this huge group of independents, kind of you know, uh, Reagan Democrats and Rockefeller Republicans in the middle that frankly kind of called balls and strikes as they saw them and, and could, could move one way or the other. Like what we have right now is much more like World War I trench warfare, where there are, there are trenches dug in, and there's, there's just a little bit of area in the middle. And, and probably if you're too much in the middle, you can get shot. Uh, and and, and it, so for instance, when I do top lines on, on statewide races in California, um, you, you actually have to get one top line that has Republicans and another top line with everyone but Republicans. And if you're Republican, you probably do the opposite. And why is that? Because there's nothing I'm going to do to move the Republicans. They're, they're absolutely stuck. And, and again, with Jerry Brown, as moderate as he was, as appealing as he would have been to a lot of uh, what we would call liberal, you know, Rockefeller uh, Republicans back when he was first term governor, first time governor, uh, there was not a damn thing he could do. And, and it just always got dialed up to, you know, like an 80, 20, 90, 10 thing. And, and so, 
it's we're there. It's not moving. It's not changing. We just need to, if you do politics, you need to adapt to it. And, and listen, if you do politics where nationally, uh, I think you need to adapt to, you know, something really, really simple, which is that um, the, I, I mean, and, and Trump has proven this, that, that if you, you need to see the world exactly uh, as it is and, and, you know, more and more like get out the vote, you know, and, and, and registration and a lot of things that have for a long time considered to be too mechanical are, are a lot larger because you're, you're not persuading a lot of people anymore. Looking ahead four years, even before this election's called, but the likelihood is that Biden is a one, serves one term, you know, because of age and nothing else, maybe not, but probably so. And Harris would be in an obvious position to run for president. She'd be in a good position. Gavin Newsom also wants to run for president. You've worked with both of them and run campaigns for both of them. So if, um, if in 2024, does Gavin step up and challenge uh, Kamala? And if so, who do you pick? Oh, they're, look, they're friends. That's, that's kind of the premise of that question. It's kind of absurd, honestly. So you, you don't think... Um, yeah, you know, the, 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 it's just that it's an absurd hypothetical. Okay. Uh, you don't think uh, Harris would run for, for uh, president in four years? Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming Biden steps down, of course. I'm, I'm one of these people who, who um, I actually think the, uh, I, I think the political graveyards are by and large full of people who, have, who, who run for office and they have everything planned out and they figured out how they're going to get the presidency there was a guy named um, a great California story named William Noland, who, as we remember, if we go back in our history, was convinced that the path to the presidency was to push out a sitting Republican governor and run for that office in 1958 and put himself in, in line for presidency of the United States. As we all know, he, he lost an ugly election to Pat Brown, which oh, yeah. would created the Brown ascendancy, and he ultimately ended up committing suicide, a, a, a depressed and broken person. The, the, you can't like, and I just think the biggest fool's errand in the world is to look down the road and, and think that you can read the tea leaves. No one knows what's going to happen. Uh, what about the compact? There was a popular vote compact. I think 11 states have signed up. Um, does that play any role at all in this election about who, Gets our electors. Oh, you're, ta you're talking about the compact on the yeah. electoral votes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But remember the way that thing was designed, you had to get to the critical mass mm -hmm. to have it kick in place. And there's just, not, you're not going to get to the critical mass. It's the, you know, the only, uh, again, the only practical way to do it is to significantly increase the membership of the House of Representatives. Um. California is sort of a nation state, and I mean, 40 million people or more. So if you do a statewide campaign here, it seems like you probably have the skills to do a national campaign without that much of a jump. Is California, does it, is that sort of the way it works? Is the hierarchy there? Do you get, you get your national training by handling a, you know, a statewide campaign here? It's, it's a good, it's a good place to start. The, the other thing that's unrecognized about, you know, San Francisco in particular, is this, is Kamala Harris and Gavin Newsom came out of San Francisco politics, which Republicans love to make fun of. 
But I, I'll tell you something, that is, that is one of the toughest proving grounds anywhere in America, some of the hardest politics. If you, it's almost like, it's like playing in the Dominican leagues and then you go to the, to the, to the major leagues and you actually think it's easy because it's harder. And so that's why, that's why like so many like really truly talented people have come out of San Francisco and people, they would have looked at, and again, to your earlier question about these hypotheticals, people would have looked at us like we were crazy if you said a person would emerge from San Francisco and become vice president of the United States. But, but there's, there's, a, there's a huge amount of, of, of upside into having come out of that. And, and it really is a incredibly talented pool of people who, who really have to, like, really have to emerge from a cauldron. Are there any up and coming uh, political folk out there that you see? You know, this is looking ahead again, but uh, the younger people on the way up, Okay, California is full of them. I mean, just look at our look at our statewide office holders. I mean, Eleni Kunalakis, uh, you know, Javier Becerra, Fiona Ma, Alex Padilla, Tony Thurman, a lot of talented mayors, you know, Robert Garcia, Libby Schaff. I mean, California is full of remarkable talent. If I don't know if you went to the um, the the kickoff rally in Oakland, but but one of the better introductions I ever saw. For a for a person in a huge rally was was given by Libby Schaff. Uh, I've seen uh, Tony Thurman's one of the uh, truly truly a talent. Uh, uh, same with all the, the these other folks. I mean, so uh, it'll be interesting to to see. And and there, there's also a I also believe that there will be some really important Latino leaders who come out of California that will make a a you know a national statement and. And uh, it almost happened with, um, and, and and you know it, it did happen on some level with the with the with the you know heading up the convention with Antonio Viragoza again another incredibly talented person. But I think it's going to happen more and more as we go forward. Do you see any likely uh, contenders out there for an empty Senate U.S. Senate seat if, of course, Harris becomes <laughs> VP? Uh, likely contenders. Putting their money on anybody. <laughs> No, who, you know, that's, that's like, you know, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many people swimming in that pool. I don't think there's any water in it. <laughs> we had a podcast a while back and uh, in fact, we had a couple of comments at top Padilla. The secretary of state was a front runner there because he goes way back with Newsom. I don't know. I'm throwing that name out there. It would seem Becerra would be an obvious pick as well, if that's his interest. Um, I think there's a there's a whole whole group of of great picks, and I, I think it's one of those things where whatever decision Governor Newsom makes, it'll be a it'll be a really good decision. Again, back to the earlier question you were asking, which was about the talent pool. There's just a huge talent pool in the state, so there's a lot of great people, and um, uh, whoever he picks will be great. You think all the discussion about turnout, Democrats driving turnout. And clearly across the country and in California, this was a big deal. But in turn, during one of the earlier discussions, uh, one of the one of the panelists said that it also drew, drew it also forced Republican turnout. There was such a um, height of excitement and interest in the election, a lot of emotion. Do you see a Republican turnout? Look at the other side. Do you see that happening as well? A, a, a strong Republican turnout. 
Well, there's no question that there was a strong Republican turnout, but isn't that healthy for democracy? If both sides turn out in record, I mean, this is going to be a record-breaking election. And, uh, you know, one of the things to focus on here in California is that I think is really a model, and I I hope we don't lose mail-in voting across the country, is look at what Alex Padilla has done in California. We have uh, over 21 million registered voters. Uh, This election is going to break every record in terms of participation. And it's just a really simple thing. Uh, If you give people... A, a good amount of time, like a month or so to vote instead of just one day. And you let people actually have the luxury of, of doing it, sitting at their kitchen table. Uh, and, and you have, let's say in California, you have 29 days to turn them out. Uh, you're going to have those sorts of participation levels. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the model that should be the model for all across the country. It, it, it truly should be. And, and really, Alex Padilla deserves a huge amount of credit for that. The um, election in California went very smoothly, even regardless of the numbers of votes, millions of votes. But some states it hasn't. And what, is the, what would you suggest to make the election process smoother? Are there time deadlines people have to meet? Uh, does, does the count have to start earlier? This is a problem in Pennsylvania. I think they didn't start counting until the day of the election. They had ballots, obviously, in the mail. Is there some uniformity uh, that states could, uh, is there some, a system they could follow that would make this thing go easier? This was the top question on the BBC this morning. There was a Q&A from, from viewers or from listeners on the BBC. And the first question, what the hell is wrong? with Why can't the states, United States, do this in a more efficient way? Well, I think we do it in a pretty efficient way. I think that a lot of that's just, you know, kind of retrospective snobbery. Uh, I, I mean, look, if you, if you look at like what happened in uh, New York and in West Virginia during the primaries, if you haven't done mail-in voting like we have in California, I mean, in many places for over two decades, uh, it takes a little doing and, and all the states that were incredibly slow in the primary are now doing a great job on it. There's a little bit of a learning curve, but, but that will get there. But my goodness, I mean, part of the, part of the, and why people should start, stop complaining about this is uh, in a fair mail-in voting election, like we have in California, there needs to be a little bit of a cushion for if your ballot is, is postmarked on election day, it should be counted. I mean, in California, you know, the law is, uh, if they arrive by Friday, there's some states that have a larger cushion. Uh, you know, these are things that you know. My goodness, and and if you go back and historically look at all the problems with printed ballots and and uh, yeah. you know over the over the years going back, there's just as many problems. They're just different. Yeah, I like voting in my local precinct in my neighborhood. I go into my neighbor's garage. There's always a flag there. There are a couple of neighbors who are handling all the ballots. But I like that. And uh, this time I didn't do that. I mailed it. I don't like mailing it either. I like going to actually dropping it on. But every, you know, I'm on the minority. I think we're at two thirds now. People mail it in or more. Yep. I like the old fashioned way. You know? I'm with you. I, as a little kid, I used to go voting with my dad. And, and uh, I will never remember being, I was probably like nine years old and was uh, asking, looking at, there was the old voting machines that had the curtains and they had all the levers. And, 
uh, asking him what the prohibition party was, which was still in the ballot in California in, I guess, up until the sixties. So that I agree with you, that's an experience, but things change. And, and, you know, if we're nostalgic, we think it's for the worst, but it's probably for the better. You know, on the state ballot, um, it was interesting in a number of ways on correctional corrections related issues. They made it easier for inmates, uh, allowing them to vote upon completion of their sentences. Uh, on the other hand, they really turned down an effort to replace, uh, they approved replacing cashless bail, which is what we have with a different system. Um, it seems like those are contrary, a bit contrary positions. And, it, um, and there, are other, there are other issues on the ballot too that seem a bit at odds, sending sort of mixed signals. Did you, pick, did you see that or is, am I overstating that? I think, and I'm gonna to get too arcane here, but so much of these ballot questions tend to be what's cooked in the ballot question. And the ballot question for the bail, uh, I think it was Prop 25, right? Was just incredibly confusing. And same with the uh, some of those other uh, ballot measures. And uh, so I, I think actually, you know, and I'll just tell you a, a very kind of simple story about this is uh, when I was first working on um, three strikes reform, which was Prop 36. We looked at all sorts of different variations and depending upon how you put it before the voters, um, it, it, the variations from it passing overwhelmingly like it did to failing abysmally were all there in, in literally how you presented it. Uh, and, and I'm not going to go into all the details of, of why and how, but, but uh, so much of these ballot measures uh, end up being uh, w what's in front of people initially, especially if there's not money in the campaigns to really deliver a message. It's like these voters are on their own and they're looking at some confusing stuff. And a lot of times when you get confusing stuff, you get a lot of no's. Okay. A. Smith, thank you very much. I think we're out of time. I got a couple of questions I didn't get to. Um, but we'll call you on the phone later and ask. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks Thank for your you. time. Um, we really appreciate it. Yep. Take care. Take care. And this is John Howard saying goodbye. Thank you for joining in. And uh, we'll see you at the next panel.